Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. This episode features a conversation with Sarah Slack. Sarah is a partner in Foley's Miami office with a practice focused on environmental law. In this discussion, Sarah reflects on growing up in Sun Prairie, Wisconsin, attending Grinnell College for undergrad and the University of Iowa, where she earned her JD, as well as her master's in urban and regional planning with a focus on environmental and land use planning. But of course, Sarah's path wasn't exactly a straight line. You'll soon hear how instead of law school, she almost decided to get her PhD in French and how it was in those years between college and law school that she discovered her passion for environmental law while working as a paralegal. I also get Sarah to discuss her practice and what it really means to be an environmental lawyer. She shares how she divides her time between development and redevelopment work, environmental compliance counseling, transactions, and environmental litigation. Additionally, I get Sarah to reflect on Foley as the Madison office hiring partner and the co-chair of the firm's National Women's Network, and I get her to talk about the things that she wishes more people knew about the firm. We conclude our discussion with Sarah providing wonderful insight on the importance of finding mentors and being intentional with how you develop your career. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Sarah. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. We're going to start these how I start all of these, which is by having you give your professional introduction. Great. Thanks, Alexis. Hello, my name is Sarah Slack. I'm a partner in the Environmental Practice Group at Folium Lardner. I sit in Madison, Wisconsin, but I'm also licensed in California, and I do a broad variety of environmental law in a national practice. And I was just telling you how excited I am to have you on for a number of reasons, but one is I have not had anybody from the environmental practice on, so we will definitely be talking about that. But before we do, let's ignore the legal stuff. Let's talk about sort of your your, your personal origin story, which is where are you from? Where did you grow up? Yeah. So I was born in Des Moines, Iowa, and I lived there until I was just about 10 years old. My dad was a lawyer. And he worked for American Family Insurance. So when I was 10, we moved up to the Madison, Wisconsin area. And I grew up just outside of Madison in a suburb called Sun Prairie, which is unrecognizable <laughs> to me at this I'm sorry, point. Did you say, is it Sun Prairie? What was the Correct. suburb name? Yeah, okay. Sun Prairie. Yeah. Well, tell me if I found you in middle school, maybe you're in Sun Prairie at this point versus Des Moines. What were you into? Like, how would you describe yourself in terms of what kind of kid were you? My goodness. So I just had this conversation with my middle schooler. The other night, actually, I was awkward and finding myself. Middle school was a challenging time. I, in hindsight, I perceive it as a time to have survived, <laughs> which I did. But it was, it was just a very awkward time for me where I was figuring out who I was. I've always been an avid reader. And so I spent a lot of time reading both, you know, in elementary school and then all the way through and still to this day, I do a lot of reading. And that was something that was always important to me. 
And then actually in middle school, so I moved right before middle school from Des Moines to some prairie. And Which, by the way, is a tough time to move. It was a tough time yeah. to move. <laughs> so it was like a couple years before, but it's still like I just I didn't have a solid base of friendships before I transitioned into middle school. And the other thing that was a big transition for me was that in Des Moines, the big sports focus had been softball. That's just a big sport in Iowa. And at the time that I was in Des Moines, soccer was not very prominent. But when I moved up to Sun Prairie, soccer was a much more prominent sport. And I was transitioning my sports as well. So I transitioned from being a softball player to being a soccer player, which was a great transition for me. I ended up playing soccer through high school and college and, you know, continue to be actively involved in my kids' teams today. So now I'm trying to decide which direction I want to go because there's so many <laughs> things you said that that I love and I think are true for most of us. But you're one of the first people because I ask all the guests this and I like the awkward in finding yourself because I think anyone hearing that it's like, yes, me too. <laughs> and that's why, and I know you mentioned you have a middle schooler. My kids aren't quite middle school age yet, but I'm just like, those are the weird years. <laughs> let's, yes. see. let's see how that goes. But for my part, when I, I switched elementary schools a number of times, but the one I stayed at in Glendale, Wisconsin was in fourth grade. And I remember switching schools in fourth grade and being like, oh my gosh, these kids go way back with each other. And so to add on a few more years and do that in middle school, I think makes it even harder. And then also switching sports. I know we're all grownups now and these aren't things we like think about at night, but that's tough. And I say this as somebody who tried to play soccer freshman year of high school and didn't realize that other people had started playing when they were four. Right. And it was, it was hard. <laughs> so for you to successfully make that transition, and it sounds like you excelled at it, is I think that's impressive. Well, thank you. Like I said, um, soccer has ended up being something where the majority of now that in hindsight, I look back at my life, the majority of my close friendships, though, maybe not all of them are soccer focused, a, a number of them are. I obviously have friends that are <laughs> that are not from soccer, yeah. but a lot of my close friends were people I met on the soccer field or they played with over the years. So well, and also I like to ask this question and get that reflection because particularly for the law students listening and maybe those who are considering Foley, you know, they'll look up your bio and it's all very impressive for all of our partners. And it's hard to imagine that, you know, anyone who's now a partner at a law firm at one point, you know, was in middle school <laughs> or played <laughs> soccer or did. So I just think it's important to paint more of a fulsome image of the person because that makes it easier for us to relate and be like, oh, you know, if Sarah did that, you know, I think I could too. But now take me to high school and in particular when you are thinking about college, what was the process around that? Where did you decide where to go? And, and just reflect on that a bit for me. Yeah. So one of the courses that I really enjoyed in high school was, I think it was my sophomore year, we had an English course that did a lot of readings and transcendentalism. Thoreau, Emerson, you know, just questioning like who you are and the world. And that was something that was really a significant turning point for me to really, you know, again, do some more reflection. In high school, I was still definitely very much finding myself. And I I would say I was not a person who really bloomed until I was in college. And so the process of finding my way to college was an important one for me. I was in some prairie, some prairie high school. There's only one back then. I think there are now two. <laughs> so, and I was trying to decide where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do. And for me, I really thought that I wanted to get away from home to have a different experience. And so at first I was looking at a bunch of East Coast schools and I was really focused on maybe heading out to the Boston area or New York and applied to a number of schools out there. But then I also, um, so I, I mentioned before I was from Des Moines and my dad 
was going down my junior year. I think it was my junior year. Yeah. He was driving down to pick up my grandma for Thanksgiving because we always brought her up for Thanksgiving. And he said, why don't you just come down? I'll drop you off. You can tour Grinnell College while I pick up grandma and then we'll pick you up and I'll bring you home. And it's a day off of school. And I thought, sure, why not? I'll give that a try. And I just really felt welcomed and at home at Grinnell. It was a place where it was very academically focused, but they also had strong sports teams. And I spoke with a soccer coach and I thought that I would be able to play there as well. It's just a D3 school, but I just also just really connected with the the physicality of the place. It's just, it was a beautiful location and it had these big towering cottonwood trees and sycamore trees. And I just connected with the people and the place. And even though I still applied to some of those East Coast schools that I thought was where I really wanted to head, Grinnell had my heart. And I but that, no, but what was that? I can hear you right. You're yeah. like, I went through the motions. Yeah with the other places, <laughs> but I knew where I was going. And I think it's the episode before yours. I could be wrong, but I believe it's with Katie Khalifa, another partner at Foley, where we talked about this. There's the stats and the rankings and what the school is good at and all those things, but there is also sort of just like the vibe mm -hmm. of the place. And it sounds like Grinnell definitely had the right vibe for what you're looking for. So you went to Grinnell. Mm -hmm. What did you major in and what was it like going to college? How was that for you? Yeah. So Heading into college, I had a lot of different interests, as many people do, right? And one of the things that attracted me to Grinnell was also that there are no required courses, except for your major. Your major will have required courses, but you don't have to take so many credits of math or so many credits yep. of, of anything like that. So that was one of the things that really drew me was that I was really going to be able to direct my own path. And when I started, I had taken French since I was in seventh grade. And so I tested basically into the highest level of French there. And so I was basically doing literature at that point. And by the way, that's amazing to me. I took French from seventh grade to maybe sophomore year of high school, but I'm impressed <laughs> that you emerged. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, I love French and I, and I still do. And, and so I, so I, start, I took French and then I took some history courses. Uh, Grinnell has this program that everyone takes. It's called a tutorial, which is you get to choose a subject and it's a small course of eight to 12 people with a professor on a topic. And it's a writing focused course. So you do research and writing and it's kind of an intro course to help you develop your skills to transition from high school to college with respect to that. And so I took that and a couple of other courses and, you know, some history courses. And I kind of meandered through a variety of courses, but the constant through my first couple of years was I was always taking a French course. And I got to a point in my sophomore year where I realized that I was basically at the level of French where I was doing almost an English major, but in French, because wow. I was just doing the literature courses. And so it was all the reading was in French and it was, it was fabulous. And so I ended up being a French major in part because I just enjoyed it so much, but then also in part because I had tested out and was so high up. And then I studied abroad and then I graduated college in seven semesters just to save money. <laughs> a little faster. So, and yes. by the way, where did you study abroad? Was it in France or yeah. a French speaking country? Okay. <laughs> yep. I spent a semester in Paris. And so that was an amazing experience. The movie Sabrina, there's a, a, a line in Sabrina that Paris c'est toujours une bonne idée, which is Paris is always a good always idea. Always a good idea. Yeah. So I think that that's always true. <laughs> so um, I'm a big fan of Paris as a place. So yeah, so I ended up majoring in French. I was a French major. Grinnell does not have minors. So I had a concentration in Western European studies, which was effectively a type of history focus. And so, yeah, I graduated. And But Grinnell has this thing where you can graduate. And after you graduate, you can take 
any four credit course for $100 and it can oh. count towards your major GPA. So I graduated, but I took one course for $100 <laughs> and stayed on, enjoyed my kind of final semester with my friends and I worked and yeah. Well, and so. I love the way you describe that. And of course, and the, there's so many benefits, I think, when people are listening to this. But also, we are getting people who aren't so sure about law school, but are just listening to hear about the professional paths of others. And that certainly is a distinguishing feature of Grinnell, you know, and I'm not quite sure what may have changed since then, but I'm certain it probably retains a lot of that. But the way you described your ability to sort of meander into that major versus maybe the experience of some as would be, you know, you're, I'm undeclared and now I feel forced just to pick versus sort of taking the things that excite my interest. And then also, as I'm referring back to other podcasts, I guess two podcasts before yours with Laura Ganoza, she is very clear about her Francophile nature. Oh, okay. I don't believe she speaks French though, but we talked a lot about how when she was picking a major, she was like, because I envisioned myself one day, you know, working in, I don't know, marketing in Paris. And then eventually she did get to visit, but it's just funny because we're talking about about that interest a couple of times on the show. And for me, the last time I was in France, maybe the only time we I visited Paris a few years ago and I was having to dust off my high school French and it was atrocious, <laughs> but it was better than my husband who's only taken Spanish. Right. <laughs> so. Well, and the French definitely appreciate any efforts to speak their language. Appreciate so. the attempt. I mean, I was remembering like a lot of the things in middle school and high school were song-based to remember mm -hmm. verb conjugation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have a, something that I learned as a seventh grader that was like a little dialogue exchange. It was between Charlie Brown and Lucy, and I still know it by heart. That's amazing. Well, and I will I will not sing it for the show, so anyway, <laughs> apologies, but... The little bit of German that I know is definitely a song from sixth grade because in where I went to middle school, you took French, German, and Spanish, and then you chose. And so if you ever need me to speak German, I have one song I can sing. Is it a Christmas tree? Because that is the it's song not, that I know in German. It's, it is not, but we will keep moving before I mistakenly feel compelled to share this. But okay, so you you reflected on the time at Grinnell. So what What's next? Is law school on the horizon? Or what was the plan in terms of what you were going to do professionally after college? So I was all in on French when I graduated. And I actually applied for and was admitted to several PhD programs. And I was intending to get a PhD in French. And so, you know, I graduate, I was going to go to UW-Madison here. And a couple of weeks before I was to start my program, two or three of my best friends from college called me and they kind of had an intervention where they were, they sat me down and they were like, Sarah, do you really want to be a French professor? It's a highly competitive field and more and more Francophiles are entering the field. And is that really the path that you want to go down? We think you really want to go to law school. <laughs> this is, a, I'm sorry, this is amazing. <laughs> what? And so, I mean, cause I, that was always like kind of my backup, like, well, maybe I'll do law school if I don't, because my dad was a lawyer and I, mm -hmm. I took a lot of philosophy courses and logic courses and I do enjoy, obviously <laughs> foreshadowing, you know, so I really thought about it and I decided to take a couple of years to think about it and got a job in kind of a legal field. I worked for an insurance company doing contract and compliance work. But then after that, before I did enter law school, I actually went out to DC and spent a year working at a law firm as a paralegal assistant, again, just to kind of make sure that that was the path that I wanted to take. And so I was a somewhat non-traditional law student when I got there in that I had worked for several years mm -hmm. uh, before going back. Well, um, and I have to unpack this just a little bit because what sure. you said is amazing <laughs> to me. So at the risk of being repetitive, I'll be repetitive. So you said I was all set 
PhD in French. Yep. And my good friends were like, hold on, what are you doing? We don't actually think that's what you ought to do. And I just have to ask when they're having this intervention or saying these things to you, did you fight that at all? Were you like, no, no, this is what I want to do. Or did it actually help you be like, maybe what was your response essentially? Yeah. So my response was I had been feeling that as well. And so I was actually really grateful to them for raising that because sometimes you get on a path and you just think you have to keep following it and figuring out how you exit that path is a challenge. And by having them help me see that it was a reasonable thing to do to exit that path, I think that that really helped me with the decision that I had been feeling was coming for myself personally anyway. Yeah. You know, I think that their approach was very positive ultimately because it was basically a, like, are you sure that this is really what you want to do? And it gave me the chance to say, mm -hmm. I'm not, not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure that this is really what I want to do. And I do think maybe I want to be a lawyer. And so my dad, I mentioned was a lawyer in American family here in Madison area. And so I'd spent a couple of years working in their corporate legal department over the summers and I really enjoyed those opportunities. Oh, wow. That's interesting exposure. Yeah. Yes. And so I did have some context at that time about what it was like to practice law. And so, you know, I think that it just really helped me to have the opportunity to take a deep breath and pause and say, yeah, mm -hmm. no, I do think that I want to exit this before I I promise we will move forward, but two <laughs> former, you know, philosophy majors, but there is something there about, but like, and you've said this a number of times about getting to know oneself and one's interests. And obviously you very much have interests in both, but I think we can't discount sometimes how others can see things in us that maybe we're not quite ready to acknowledge. And I've had that as my own experience, really professionally, as I was trying to kind of figure out next step where someone else is like, but I think you actually like X. I know you keep saying Y, but it sounds like you like X. And then you're like, oh, wait, maybe you're right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But so you, you mentioned that you worked for a few years before going back to law school. And one of those years was actually as a paralegal. What was the process for you in figuring out where you went, we're going to go to law school? And then of course, where did you actually end up going? So when I decided to head out to DC for a year, I just contacted like a job placement company because at the time that was in the that was in the 2000 time frame <laughs> and you know the the process was you could go go out there they would set up a number of interviews for you and you know hopefully you would get a gig and that's exactly what happened I went out for kind of like a long week I guess it was a long weekend I think I went out on like a Wednesday or Thursday and interviewed Thursday Friday and then came back Saturday or Sunday and uh, did a number of interviews, had a couple of different opportunities, but the place where I really clicked was with a firm called Beverage and Diamond, which is a big DC firm, and it is an environmental boutique. Now, I had not, prior to that, specifically identified an environmental practice area as something that I wanted to focus in. But, you know, for me, it was really about the connection with the people. I connected with this amazing woman who was hiring a paralegal, and she happened to practice in the FIFRA practice group, which is the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act, pesticides, basically. And that was the beginning of my, uh, you know, kind of love of environmental law. I ended up taking a job working at Beverage and had the opportunity to work on a number of really interesting pesticide matters, including temporary injunctions and associated with, you know, people trying to use chemicals that were the subject of ongoing ownership debate. <laughs> yep. and, and then also uh, a data compensation arbitration where the parties were trying to figure out what 
a new entrant into the market was going to be required to pay the original developer of the data to support the entrance of the product into the market. But then I also got the chance to work with a couple of other partners in various areas in like air and natural resources and RICRA and CERCLA. These are all fun environmental acronyms. And so I just really thought, you know, this is such a fascinating area of law where there's this amazing intersection of science and law. And it is so young and so new. Well, and an area you don't get exposure to in law school unless you specifically take an environmental class. So I just find this so interesting that the seed (laughs) was planted before you went to law school. Right. And then what happened was I had decided that I thought that I wanted to go to the University of Iowa because of a number of reasons, including that my now husband was going to be in that area. But the problem was I applied a little late. And so that was a super busy year for them. And I will admit this, I I got waitlisted. And so I called them and I said, I really want to go there, but my LSAT was going to expire because I'd taken it before I yeah. Before anyway. And so all these factors. And they said, well, the soonest we can admit you is for the summer program next year, which would mean you wouldn't have to take that because they had a summer start program. Yep. And they said, we can admit you for that. And I thought, okay, you know, I know I think I want to do this environmental law. I didn't have an, an environmental undergrad or background. And so I started looking at graduate programs and ended up choosing, applying to, getting into, and then choosing to participate in an environmental and land use planning program where I got a joint degree at Iowa for those two programs. So I started that year in their environmental land use planning group and then started law school the following summer. A couple of things. I'll keep just reflecting what's most stands out to me. I'm very familiar with the summer start because I did that at Michigan. Okay. So, and I don't think I realized that, do they still, does Iowa still do that by the way? They don't. Yeah, Michigan does not either. So I think I'm one of the last few classes who had that experience. But I get that. And it kind of changes your graduation date. Or maybe it didn't for you because you also were doing the the land use and planning degree. This is amazing to me because the level of intentionality you're able to bring because you had a sense of what you wanted your practice focus to be. And so did you essentially start on the master's? Was that the first year? And then you started law school? Correct. So the first year I started, because it's a four-year program, normally it would be five years for the two degrees, but it's four years when you do it as a joint dual degree. And so I started in the master's program, and then I started law school. I I mean, I think I finished my master's program on like a Friday and started law school on a Monday (laughs) kind of thing. (laughs) So... I mean, and I just finished my coursework, right? I still had other work to do, but yeah. Well, and we're going to unpack. I'm saving it for when we get to like your day-to-day practice discussion, but we're definitely going to unpack like what it means to have an environmental law practice. So I'm going to somewhat ignore your master's, which I don't <laughs> want to, but I'm going to right now and ask you, and you can reflect on that experience too, but what was that experience like for you, whether it be starting law school, but for you also that master's experience is in there. You know, you'd been out of school for a few years. How was that adjustment? How did you find the experience? Yeah. So one of the things that I think was really helpful to me was because I did come from working at a law firm where I was kind of used to putting in long hours reading things. That's how I approached both my master's program and law school. I would basically spend every day from like 8.30 until 6.30 or 7 doing work, sometimes later, obviously, just depending on demands. We all know about that. (laughs) But I kind of approached it like a job, that this is the time that I needed to dedicate to this in order to be successful. I've said this a few times because I'm someone who went straight through. And the only reason I ended up having that perspective was I became good friends with a number of people who'd had some years off. And they definitely treated it as 
during the daytime hours, I'm treating this as a job. And then also many of them had other like just familial obligations and they, they actually couldn't. They weren't going to study until midnight because they needed to have family time and things like that. Yeah. 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 So that was the approach that I took. I had the benefit of then being you know, pretty successful <laughs> in both well, my- And I've said this so many times, but you also knew what you wanted to do. And that is very different, I think, from the experience. Now, there's there are more people, particularly as I think it's more and more common for law students to have taken at least a couple of years off between undergrad and law school, which I think is great, even though I was not one of those people. <laughs> so I think more and more people sort of know what they're going for. But I think there's also a lot of law students who are like, I know I want to be a lawyer. I just think I do. I don't quite know what. I hope they teach me you know, what the options are. But for you, you were very, very targeted. So when you were in law school, were you then able to also, I assume, take advantage of the opportunities to learn more about that particular practice area? Yeah, that's right. I focused in and took all the courses that I could that were environmental specific, including a couple of seminars that were provided by some of the professors at Iowa. And then I also had the benefit of when I was looking at summer programs, knowing that that's what I was interested in doing. My first summer, like I said, I started in law school. And so, but then my, I guess the first summer was actually my second summer because of my graduate program, but my first summer, I actually ended up in Kansas City. Now there's, I will share with you that Foley did not do 1L on-campus interviewing at Iowa. I submitted my resume and request and I got a very polite letter thanking me for my interest and encouraging me to apply as a 2L. (laughs) But there were a number of firms in Kansas City that actually targeted Iowa. And so I had the opportunity to interview at a couple of those, had a couple of offers and ended up spending my first summer in Kansas City at a large firm there and focused in on environmental and real estate law. Kind of, there's a lot of overlap sometimes. There's a lot of differences, but there's definitely a lot of overlaps. And that was a firm called Stinson Morrison Hecker. And I had a really amazing experience there. Kansas City is a fabulous city and a great location. And ultimately, I had an offer to go back, but decided that I really wanted to focus on building my practice in the Wisconsin area because of where my family was located. And actually, that's not quite true because I did also look at DC firms. I did also seriously consider a couple, including beverage. But when it came right down to it, at the time, I was thinking, I knew myself, I didn't think I wanted to jump around. Mm -hmm. A lot of the guidance I was getting at the time, especially for my career services, was take the best offer you can get, and then you can go wherever you want. Yep. Or even the like, start in DC and then go wherever you want a few years after that, stuff like that. If you don't start in DC, you're not going to get to DC was Mm -hmm. was definitely a message that I heard from my career services people. So I really struggled because I had enjoyed my time in DC, but I was really thinking that you know, based on family obligations and other things that I wanted to be in Wisconsin. And I, you know, part of why I ended up choosing Foley was because there was such an amazing practice, a national practice that I felt like I would not have to sacrifice the ability to practice environmental law on a national scale, that I could live in Wisconsin. Well, and you're, you're getting both. Yeah. Right. I remember talking to a number of friends that were like, well, first of all, that's still big law. You're probably not going to stay. And I, I was trying, I kept an open mind, obviously, I'm still here. (laughs) And, you know, it was just, like I said, I really had to pinch myself to think about how fortunate I was to have found this opportunity that was going to enable me to have this practice that I was really interested in and passionate about, but also while living in a state and in communities that kind of matched my 
my lifestyle choices. So absolutely. Well, and it just shows how unique everyone's decision-making process really should be. And I know particularly for law students, it's like, okay, give me the answers. If this is my GPA and I want to go to this city, what are the chances of me getting here? And I think we all very much understand the urge, but I think one thing this podcast likely does is maybe temper that a little bit and show you just how you really need to figure out what your priorities are and certainly be aware of likelihoods and chances and trends. But um, actually, Jaime Guerrero recently said it. He's another person who's a few episodes back. Rankings are great. You know, all that is great. But at the end of the day, it's where are you going to thrive? Right. And that's the firm. That's the city. That's is your family nearby. That's all right. of those things. And I think to ignore that, it's maybe, you know, we want you to get a job. So, you know, I'm not saying don't take a job if you have an offer, but to ignore that is why you'll see people making even more adjustments professionally because they sort of were going against maybe some of their better instincts early on. Right. Or making a decision that they knew was a short-term decision. And there's nothing wrong with that decision, yep. making a decision that you think is a short-term decision so that you can you know, facilitate different long-term decisions. But for me, just because of, you know, I worked for a couple of years, then I had four years in law school, you know, I- You were ready to have a base though. I was like, ready, to not, yeah. yeah. I was ready to be in the place where I thought that I wanted to build my career. And I lucked out. <laughs> So we get to the, although let's close this gap and then we'll jump into your practice. Yeah. So Foley gave you that letter or sent you that letter that was like, <laughs> great, apply next year. So yes. you did. Presumably that works out. You yeah. know, you summer with the firm, you finish and I law split school. I my summer actually. Oh, did you? I did. So this was, you know, the 2004 time frame, right? Yes. 2004 was when I summered. Ultimately, I decided to focus on Milwaukee. I did look at Chicago and DC as well, just as alternatives, but decided that there were really great opportunities in Wisconsin. But then partially in response to advice I was getting from career services and you know just other anecdotal sources, I ended up deciding to split my summer between Foley and Godfrey and Khan. Godfrey is, I think that they would consider themselves a regional firm with their headquarters in Milwaukee, and they had a really strong environmental practice. And it was just a different firm. It was smaller than Foley. Yeah. And some of the messaging, you know, there's, Foley gets a hard reputation in Wisconsin, I think, with respect to, I can say that now too, from my perspective as the sorry, hiring sorry, partner I, in Madison. I, so. I'm, I'm <laughs> laughing because it's so relative because this is where people hear about the market differences. Because frankly, like in Milwaukee in particular, we are the biggest game in town and we've only become bigger over the last four to five years, just to be, you know, the firm is well over, well, close to 1,100 lawyers. Actually, I think over 1,100 lawyers right now. So when you're looking at some other firms that are very well established, wonderful firms in Milwaukee, but that may be their primary office, they may have a handful. We seem like, like you said, big law, like big law, big law. But then when you compare, say, Foley, who our footprint in the US is quite substantial. And last I checked, we we're still like top 20 by headcount in the US. But based on a number of other factors, we are now no longer seen as big when you start looking at the national scale or international. So it's just, okay. it's so funny, like what your frame of reference sure. is. So that's why I laugh as you said, because it's like, oh, I know, I know exactly what you're saying. So I ended up splitting my summer and I had a really great experience at both Godfrey and Foley. But again, I just was so impressed. So I think the, the way I've described my path is you can tell there's a lot of intentionality in how I got from through my, my career choices. And one of the things that impressed me so much about Foley was everybody I talked to at Foley had a very intentional story about how they 
chose Foley because it was the best in their practice, because it was the best in that market that, and they wanted to build their practice in the best place. There was just a lot of intentionality. And at a lot of other firms in Milwaukee, it was more of a, well, this is kind of how it worked out. Or, you know, I decided to come here and try it and it's been where I built my career. And, you know, I just was so impressed with, like I said, the intentionality of it. So many people at Foley had come here because of the opportunities and the clients and the people. And that was certainly what drew me here. Well, you just said a lot of the buzzwords, particularly the people, but it (laughs) is, I think for, you know, and as somebody who, you know, I've never practiced at Foley and I was a summer associate here a very long time ago, but that combination of very high quality, high caliber, practice in whatever area, but then that people part, it's both, right? So it's practicing at, you know, the the highest echelon and also bringing my full self. These are all very buzzwordy cliches that might sure. gross some people out, but that bringing my full self, like you kind of meet people and you learn their other interests and that, yes, they do this sort of law, but they also have a family or in a band or, right. or name the other sort of things that holy lawyers are into. Right. And I, someone told me at some point in my career you know, that you spend a lot of time with the people that you work with. And in fact, if you look at your day, you probably spend more time on a daily basis with the people you work with than with your family, other than sleeping, obviously. Yes. So that was something that I took to heart and always thought, you know, who are the people that I want to spend time with? Because there are a lot of people that you can work with, but who do you want to spend your time with? Mm -hmm. Who are you going to be comfortable when all is said and done, getting a coffee with, having lunch with, grabbing a drink with? Who do you want to be there with you building your career? And the people at Foley stood out to me as those people for all of those reasons. And that is some major insight. I almost just want to pause and be like, listener, rewind, listen to that again. (laughs) But no, I think that's absolutely right. And now, you know, we're finally to the point, Sarah, where I want you to talk about your practice. And I'm going to say what little I know about having environmental focused practice to show perhaps my relative ignorance. But for somebody who has had a lot of exposure to the industry, right? Because I was a legal recruiter. I have to be functional in most practice areas. But particularly when I was practicing, my impressions of environmental were it is very regulatory based. The hours can feel different because of that, right? Because there is this need to jump in to read the statute. And then outside of that, I honestly don't know a lot. So in addition to just educating the listeners, you'll you'll certainly be educating me. And I'm not quite sure where the best place to start is if it's you sort of describing like the breadth and scope of your practice currently. And then I could maybe drill down a bit with the places I think people might have questions about. Sure. And actually, I'm going to take a step back if that's okay. Perfect. Yeah. So one of the things that also drew me to Foley's environmental practice is different firms approach environmental practices in different ways. And the environmental group is sometimes slotted in in different spots. At Foley, when I started, there was like a regulatory group. So this goes way back. There used to be four departments, business, litigation, IP, and then regulatory. And Foley was in regulatory. And one of the things that I really was attracted to about that was that environmental lawyers at Foley didn't have to choose between a business law focused practice, like transactional focused practice, and a litigation focused practice. We do both business, you know, transactional type work as well as litigation type work. And that was something that was really appealing to me because I was interested in the subject of environmental law and wanted to do everything associated with that. And over the course of my career here, I've had the opportunity to participate in innumerable transactions for all different types of industries. And and I'll focus in shortly on some of my, you know, current focus areas. But that I've also had the chance to participate in 
cases and in administrative actions that were very much, you know, litigation oriented. Which, by the way, is so interesting to me because I automatically, as you could tell, slot it more in a transactional versus. And so I, that's such an important clarification. And I think, as you say, it, it's like, of course it is. Of course, it's going to have a variety of manifestations. But the fact that you've been able to be involved in basically all the types of manifestations is really interesting. Well, and there's a third area too, which is compliance counseling, because that's huge in environmental law. You, you referenced reading the statutes and the regulations. On the first day of my environmental law class in law school, my professor, who is this fabulous professor, Professor Stensbog, he said, you know, people think of environmental law as being very black or white, right? Either you are wearing a white hat and you're working for the NGOs and you're saving the planet, or you're wearing a black hat and you're working for corporations and you're a polluter. And he said, and that's just absolutely not true. Most all of environmental law is totally gray. And the environmental regulatory regime is so complicated and big. He, he explained, he said, 40 CFR, which is behind me now. <laughs> the podcast people can't see it, but you can. 40 CFR is longer than the tax code. And there are more ins and outs to the environmental regulatory regime than in the tax code. And so it's all very, very gray. And so, you know, people think of this as being, you know, either you're a good guy or a bad guy. And that's just not true. Most of the time, and this has certainly been my experience through the course of my career, is we have the benefit of working for amazing clients who just have a hard time reading the really complicated regulations and statutory regimes to which they're subject. And one of the things I love about environmental law, but that makes it constantly complicated, is that it is constantly changing based on science, based on revised definitions, based on new information and new understandings. So it's very gray. There's a lot of people just trying to comply with a very complex system. And they and, call Sarah yes. to help. To tell, <laughs> that's call, the counseling So yeah, so my practice right now currently is definitely still, you know, transactional litigation and compliance focused. It varies over the course of years, <laughs> but I would say it's about 40 to 50% transactional, 30 to 40% litigation, and then 30 to 40% compliance counseling. A few, I guess, explanations or definitions sure. behind that. So when you identify those three buckets, the first transactional meaning there's some sort of large scale deal happening and there's an environmental component. The other, you know, litigation meaning there's some sort of, you know, lawsuit and environmental regulation or whatever is at issue in that. And then the other being like, you gave the example, I think already of clients who have questions as they try to navigate the space. Mm -hmm. Am I accurate in how I'm summarizing those. I'm thinking of that law student who's like maybe not fully getting what you mean. So the transactional can be, we work with a variety of different clients in a variety of different spaces. So sometimes the transactional element is with respect to kind of a more traditional chemical company and there's a transaction involved and what are the potential considerations both from a an ongoing operational perspective so do they have the permits they need are their permits in good standing do they have violations do they have the permits that they need for the client to do what they want to do after the transaction is consummated those types of questions but then also historic environmental liability or present environmental liability what were their former operations? How long have they been around? Where have they disposed of their waste? What are the potential liabilities associated with that? Because in a diligence setting, you know, the best thing that we can do for clients is to try to get as much information as we can about the potential risks and then make sure that they have the opportunity to allocate those through the language of the transactional documents and also possibly through either adjustments in purchase price or purchasing of environmental insurance. 
there are a lot of ways to manage and mitigate those things. But the first thing is understanding them and knowing what the questions and concerns. Well, and I, I love hearing you talk about it because I think you really show, and this, I mean, this is for all the lawyers, the firm itself, but that subject matter expertise. And I say this as a former commercial litigation attorney who just was very general and who did litigate things that had some environmental aspects. And they were things that a company got spun off and certain legacy liabilities kept with a certain entity, which meant that maybe entity wasn't so viable after the fact. But as someone who didn't have that environmental expertise and who still thinks I was competent at the time, <laughs> but it was still, it was a different perspective that I would bring. And we would certainly bring in somebody like yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think just to show people that, you know, where that subject matter and that niche like really comes into play in a variety of circumstances is just really important and interesting. Yeah, right. And at this point in my career, one of my strong focus areas is on renewable energy projects. And we have an amazing energy group here. We do work for finance parties, we do lender work, we do developer work. And so our role there is, you know, first of all, that's just awesome, great, feel good work. I love working on renewable energy transactions. It's not that there are no environmental implications associated with those. I don't want to give that perspective. But I do think for me personally, I think that that's just an important transition the world. Yeah. And so it's been great to have that strength of practice and to have those opportunities and just making sure that that those projects have all of the permits that they say that they have and that they're in like I said in good standing because it's important for our clients whether they be, you know, developers who are looking to take that on and to further develop a project or finance parties who want to make sure that the project is sound so they can recover their investment or, you know, lenders who need to make sure that they have the permits that they need to get through the lending period. You know, it's just an important part of helping to make those transactions happen. And so it's great. It's really filling. And it's always amazing to me, especially on those energy practice matters to get to work with like a cross section of Foley attorneys who are so awesome and great in their space. So absolutely. It's funny. So I'm looking at our time. I'm guessing we'll talk for another 10 minutes or so. And I don't want to turn it into a speed round, but there's three big areas that I want to see if we're able to cover. Okay. And I'm just going to say them all and then we'll see how we do. Okay. <laughs> One is I want to get your insight for that person who thinks they are potentially interested in environmental. Like, how do they begin to learn or surmount, you know, because at this point you have, I think, you know, 15, 16 years under your belt in this area. But then also I know I'm talking to you as the hiring partner for Madison and as a national co-chair for our women's network. And I want to talk about those two things as well. But so first let's discuss, I'm that law student, like how do I begin to close the gap so that eventually I can sound like Sarah? <laughs> like, what do I do? How did you close the gap early in your career? Yeah. So I had the benefit of doing that joint degree program, which yep. I think helped me stand out. And then, you know, just taking all the courses that you can and being open and forthright with your interest and being thoughtful about the firms that you even apply to and the locations that you apply to. If you are interested in practicing environmental law and you're applying for a position in, for example, a Milwaukee office, you should check and make sure that there are environmental practitioners in the Milwaukee office. National firms are fabulous, but they don't have practitioners everywhere. In our environmental practice group, we're still growing, and there are certainly offices that we don't have people full-time in. And so it's important to think about that when you're considering your options. But like I said, just making sure that you take as many courses as you can to highlight that interest, trying to make connections through networking, and then making sure that the place that you're going has a practice that's hiring. 
So, which is a harder part. And oftentimes, depending on the firm, you might be like, there's the one environmental partner. I wonder if I can get some of their work, but that can be a harder road than if you're somewhere that has a larger team. The other thing I'm wondering about, Sarah, for you is in those first few years, because I think on the show we've covered, it's made clear that we understand that lawyers have a steep learning curve. And I'm just wondering, do you think there's anything different to that learning curve in terms of your practice area? Is it kind of the same stuff, like a lot of, you know, get feedback? Yes. You know, realize that you're going to be told how to improve (laughs) those first few years? Well, yes, I will say that in my experience, even though I had that interest, that background, and I had really endeavored to credential myself in this area, even before I started practicing law, you know, for the first year of practice, I would often get a project and I would come into my office and I would gently close the door and then I would sit down at my desk, take some deep breaths and Google whatever it was <laughs> they just asked me to do because there are a lot of acronyms. It's just a very complicated area of law, as are many. It's not just environmental, but that's okay and that's normal. And I have a very specific memory from about 13 months into my practice here at Foley, uh, remembering going into my office after I'd gotten a project, sitting down and just starting working. And I paused and I thought, wow, I've gotten over some sort of hurdle because I feel ready to take this on. I know what to do. I know I don't have to orient myself. And I think right. many attorneys will orient themselves sometimes with Google. It's a good resource that, you know, doesn't cost the same as some of our other research tools. But I think that's right. And I think that's probably validating for some people to hear. Now we do go on to use like much more legitimate Oh, 100%. Ways after that, just to be clear with everyone. Oh, no, 100%. Yeah, I don't practice based on Google, but it was often, no, you know, it would often be like confirming what an acronym was or, yes. you know, what a chemical substance was that was being referred to. And I'll throw this tip in because I think also when you're really junior, there is that, okay, what can I figure out on my own? But back to what you said about who are you working with? Do you like them? But hopefully, and the, some of this is a judgment call, you also do feel comfortable then following up with that senior associate or that partner to get that clarification You know, after you did confirm the acronym or whatever. And I do think early on in your career, there's this battle between like, okay, what's a good question and what's not? But I think for a lot of associates, you want to be tactful, but it's you're often better off asking the question than not. And it shows you're engaged. 100%. Always better to ask the question and not spin your wheels. So in my practice, I've always had amazing mentors at all levels, partner mentors, and then you know more senior associates who've helped me along the way. And so just making sure that you develop those relationships and know that, especially in my experience here at Foley, you know, we are a team. And in my experience, the partners really care about mentoring and take it as very important that, you know, it's our responsibility to train the associates and to help them develop their careers. Because ultimately, the associate's success is the partner's success, is our client's success, is the firm's success. And so it can be hard as an associate to feel comfortable asking some of those questions, but we all want the associates to succeed. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I think this may be a bit of the segue into talking to you, perhaps wearing maybe the combo hat of hiring partner and co-chair of the National Women's Network, because I think in some ways these are overlapping things. But that focus the firm has that we really do, you know, we're, we're not a highly leveraged firm. So we don't bring someone and be like, some of you will be gone in a few years. Like, no, we really want you all to stay. But are there things that maybe particularly as hiring partner and I 
I'll say to the audience, I have our other co-chair from the Women's Network on and we dive in more to the network. I don't know if we're, we're just not going to have enough time today, sure. but you may have a few things you want to say about it as well. But just what are the things you want people to know about Foley as one of our hiring partners? Yeah. So one of the things that drew me here and uh, that has continued to be something that's important to me, there are two things. First of all, it's that we have a very uh, conservative hiring approach. If we are hiring for a position, it's because we see a need. It's because we're experiencing growth. It's because we need someone there. We don't hire five summer associates to fill one slot or even five summer associates and get hire two people, but really only have enough work for one person to be successful. That is not how we work. We hire people because we have a need, we have a growth. And every person we bring in as a summer has the opportunity to prove themselves, to become an associate. And then it's our goal and our responsibility to help them develop their careers to become our partners. And there's room for that. Like it's not, as oftentimes, like it's not the hunger games. Like the question is going to be, (laughs) is that something that you want to do? Because there is this, I think, it's not just like an adjustment, but people are still usually discovering their interests while they're starting their career. And ultimately, do you want to be a law firm partner? If you do, there is a path for that, I think, for most people at the firm. Yes. Agree, 100%. But one of the other things that drew me here, and again, was something that I experienced as a differential over my summer, was the training programs that Fully has. Like I said, I, I certainly my first year, there's a big steep learning curve, right? But part of that was filled by the projects I got, but a lot of that was filled by the training that Fully has, both at the practice group level and at the firm level. And that's something that has continued to impress me over the course of my career is how much we invest in training our associates both formally and informally. Until you experience it, it's hard to understand how important that is, but it really has been something that has helped me to be successful in my career. It's critical. Yeah. No, but it is critical. I get a lot of people, as you can imagine, who ask me, particularly as director of diversity inclusion, how can I tell if a firm cares about diversity, which is basically a proxy for how can I tell if a firm's going to care about me. But what I often say is, you know, your, your North Star is your training and development, period. So what you're really looking for is the firm that's going to teach you, develop you into being a lawyer. And both the formal and the informal are a huge part of that. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Also, I want to share an episode number, and you may have some comments on this as well. So as I mentioned, I've said it multiple times, Sarah's a co-chair of our National Women's Network. She co-chairs it with Adria Warren, who I've also had on the show. She is episode 28, and we dive in more into the, the Women's Network and you know how it endeavors to support women at Foley. But you're relatively new in terms of joining as co-chair, I want to say within the last year. So it's been great to have you on to help share in that work. And at the firm, we have the national co-chairs in each office level also has leads. And so if anything, I just want to like publicly acknowledge you also for your commitment (laughs) to stepping in and to helping because in addition to that, you know, we have a variety of other affinity groups and other things that are focused on, but there's so many hats that you're wearing, you know, not just as partner, as hiring partner, women's network. And then you've touched on it a little bit, but also you have other obligations and interests in life. (laughs) <laughs> that that you maintain <laughs> while, while also being a partner at the firm. And we haven't had a ton of time to talk about those, but I think people just like seeing that. So I don't know if you still play soccer, but I do know you have a kid in middle school and some <laughs> so other true. things going on. <laughs> 
I play soccer recreationally with my That's wonderful. Yes. <laughs> but this year, one of the things that I did and that, that is something that is interesting to me is my oldest daughter is 13. And so she was eligible to take the refing course. And so she and I took the refing course together and have refed a couple of games together. And it's something that I think I may continue to pursue. It's just a fun way to stay involved in the game. That is really interesting. I never would have thought of that. That is really fun. Well, and in our last like minute or two together, I'll ask you my final big question, which is, by the way, you've given so much great advice. So it's almost unfair for me to ask the big picture takeaways to that, either that law student or that person who's early in their career. What's your advice to them? So I think I've, I've mentioned this, but just to make sure that it's clear is find the people that you love to work with and the mentors who are going to help you develop your practice and who you feel comfortable asking those questions of. I have been very, very fortunate in my career to have amazing mentors and then amazing champions as well, who've helped me to identify opportunities, to make the right connections, to make sure that I was getting the chances to be in front of clients. And that has been very important to me in my career. So, and then I would also just say, you know, take a deep breath and proceed with intentionality, not just with respect to coming out of law school, but as you develop your career. If you find yourself in a position where you're, I was fortunate in that I knew I wanted to do environmental and so I was able to focus in on that, but take a deep breath and make sure that you're having the opportunities to niche in whatever area you think you're going to be most happy in. Because your personal success as a lawyer, again, is, is all of our success. So helping make sure that our associates find what they want and can pursue their passion is, I think, an important part of our mentoring here and of our continued growth and development of the firm as a whole. It's okay to take that time. And it's hard. It's hard when you are just starting out and you know there's a lot of things being thrown at you. And But as you develop, just, just take that opportunity. And I would encourage everyone to use their mentors as guides. Like I said, I've had great opportunities through my mentors and and have gotten great feedback. And so I would encourage everybody to, to try to find that too. That's such wonderful advice. You see me smiling, but I love the focus on intentionality. And also that means what is best for you not just for you know any other law student. Final, final question, Sarah. If someone has comments or questions and wants to find you on Foley's website, can they feel free to send you an email? Of course. Yep, I'm on the website. So. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sarah. This has been wonderful. I appreciate your time. All right, thanks, Alexis. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice.